I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr. David Peacock, conservation biologist, specialising in pest animal management. Welcome, David. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Mate, really great to have you here. We've had some great chats over the last couple of weeks. We've been, um, I've been seeing you because I should explain, your daughter is volunteering here at Animals Anonymous. Yeah, you've been very generous, and it's a great opportunity for her to as a you know, year 11 student to come and get to handle a whole gamut of animals that you have in your little menagerie here. So, yeah, yeah, Aaron's having a great time and really enjoying the opportunity. Thank you. I should let people know, you, you were responsible for the idea to put the western quoll, the chadich, back into the Flinders Ranges. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, in 2007 I had that crazy idea. In uh, 2008, I was somehow miraculously allowed by my manager to go to a World Wildlife Fund quoll workshop in Sydney and present the crazy idea before my peers and say, look, what do you quoll researchers think of this idea? The Flinders Ranges, you know, is rugged terrain and has these very significant summer flood events where through the gorges and stuff. So the notion of fencing it was just a furphy. You couldn't do that. And plus, I didn't want to take a whole lot of conservation dollars, which are rare, and uh, spend them on a bloody great big fence that we had to keep maintaining and looking after. So the crazy idea was to try and put western quolls back into the flinders as an, uh, as an additional rabbit predator because my then colleague, uh, Dr Robert Hensel, had found rabbits eating mulga seedlings, acacia annuus seedlings, at less than one rabbit in a square kilometre. Yeah, 40% of his seedlings had gone in his study site up near Arkarula in the northern flinders ranges. and So that's where the crazy idea began, maybe a, another rabbit predator, a native one, because south of the dingo fence in South Australia, the, the next biggest predator is a dingo, but we can't have that here. And so that's where it all began. And for many years in my house at uh, Ichunga, I sat there in my study putting that crazy idea together, and, and it came to pass. We, in 2014, let I was able to fly them in from Western Australia. I was given that opportunity, which I really appreciated, because I had to give the idea up to the Environment Department. And they... Um, in their wisdom, hired probably the, one of the best persons in the country to do it, which is a lady called Dr. Catherine Mosby, and she is a legend. She hates me saying that, but she is, and she did an extremely great job managing the whole people and animal situations, and and the biggest situation which we then came up with, which was feral cats, and so we were able to manage that. And now this year we're up there again. As um, I go every year as a volunteer um, to trap and see my babies and see the quolls, and we caught fifty. They'll all be breeding at the moment. They'll be having running around the females with little joeys in their pouches. And thanks to some cat baiting by the environment department up there, we've now been able to get quolls back. What a sensational thing. And, and I love that, like you say, it's not in a fenced area. So they're back in the wild. So they, they, were, they were originally all the way through that area. Yeah. They're only found now in, like, in the wild in Western Australia. That, that's correct. Yeah, they were in every basically mainland state and the Northern Territory, the bottom end of the Northern Territory. They were like an arid zone quoll. So for people who don't know what a quoll is, it's sort of a native spotted carnivore. It's compared with the um, weasels and ferrets of Europe. So when they came out here, they called it the native cat. Quoll was a word that came up, a name that came up some years later. So the Europeans tended to look for a name that they were familiar with and apply it to our native animals. And to this little guy, they, which they hated with a vengeance because they used to eat their chickens and get in their roofs and their houses and of the time and make noise and cause them grief. They called it the native cat and persecuted it to Bilio, persecuted it mercilessly. So we took probably what was one of the most common marsupial in Victoria and, and drove it to extinction. It's now the eastern quoll only on Tasmania. 
So there's no quolls left in South Australia in the wild, apart from the reintroductions. We used to have three species. That's correct. And Kangaroo Island, that mm. had tiger quolls. Yeah, yeah, the spotted tail quoll. We've just published two papers on that. So again, this passion I have for chasing up old historical records in the old newspapers of the period. Um, I've spent many, well, 12 years now, 10 years now, of, of where people go hitting golf balls around golf courses or something. Dave goes and sits on his computer and trolls through old newspapers and find these old accounts where people have reported quolls in different places. This one on Kangaroo Island was a bit different. My colleague Ian Abbott in WA, Dr Abbott, had read an old 1839 book where this person reported having a spotted animal kill one of their chickens at Kingscote. But we put that together with some old bones out of the Kelly Hill Cave over there with my colleague Dr Matt McDowell and oh, one of the explorers who went past. He saw a spotted cat on the beach on the northern coast of Kangaroo Island. So we put all that evidence together into a paper to argue that the spotted tail quolls were there and with Europeans, and we basically wiped them out probably. They had, um, there's a, another interesting paper from a wallaby skinning site down near Seal Bay, and the most second most common bone there was spotted tail quoll. They were mainly catching tamar wallabies and stuff for their skins, but they set a snare in the, in the tracks, and of course the quolls would turn up to chew on anything dead. Um, and our recent paper, we've just had it accepted in a journal called the Holocene, Matt had a bunch of jawbones out of Kelly Hill Cave, and we sent them off to an ancient DNA laboratory, and even though they were 200 years old, which just amazed me, these clever people pulled a tooth out of their jaw and under into special quarantine circumstances and extracted DNA, and they actually sit a little bit different. Um, they're like a, they may be a subspecies, but they're a little bit different to the mainland and to the Tasmanian spotted tails. So maybe they're a sort of mix of both sets of genes. They're so that not. could be a third subspecies of tiger quoll? Oh, possibly, yeah, but we need to do some more research. I mean, there are samples in the South Australian Museum that were collected here in, our, in that period, early 19, late 19th century, early 20th century, that we, no one's ever tested them. It may be they're the same as those. Maybe the SA form was also in KI, or maybe KI sits off by itself after the land bridge disappeared underwater when the, when the ice melted and whatever. Um, we don't, we, there's more research to be done. It's good fun. It's pretty interesting, pretty yeah, amazing yeah. to find. Yeah, that is. And maybe one day we can even think about putting them back over there. On your original release site, how many did you release? You said last time you were there you trapped 50, saw 50. We did, yeah, we caught 50. Our record had been 58 two years before, 58, then 53, and after this big dry period we are still able to catch 50, which was really fantastic because people were pretty concerned it had been such a dry period, but I wasn't worried because I knew they were a very adaptable animal. They eat anything they can put in their mouth, be it plant you know fruit or or any mouse or chew on a dead kangaroo and lots of kangaroos have been dying up there with the drought so yeah so the first year we put out 42 and then 37 and then 15 and i was able to fly over the first mob from southwest wa wa environment department were great they were fantastic partners and right from the beginning right from the beginning the first presentation for wildlife fund Keith Morris came up to me and said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I think it's an idea. I want to put them back. So Keith's been involved right from the beginning and he chairs the recovery of this species, the Western Quoll, what they call the Chudich. Over here we call it Idnya, which is a, an Aboriginal spelling of the, of the name. So there are lots of Aboriginal names. WA have chosen one for them called the Chudich and over here we've taken our Adnyamatna word, which is also a word that was used something similar down near Port Lincoln, Idnya. So we've used that word, Idnya. We flew in 37 from WA, but we also got five down from the Alice Springs from the Desert Park. They had some in that they were some breeding animals they wanted to get rid of, some offspring. So 42 the first year in 2014, and then we had those radio collars on them, and the team were just you know, 
it's a pretty rough country to try and monitor it. Um, Mel Jensen did a PhD on it. She did a fantastic job and extremely tough crew country in Mali scrub pulling nets and um, sorry traps on your back and carrying a Yagi antenna to try and find these quolls through that country was pretty tough and her and Pat Hodgins and Catherine and all the other interns and people who went through the project did a fantastic job to make it all possible and they bred and um, we had breeding the first year which is a major achievement and then things started to go wrong you know we had they the radio collars send out a little frequency they beep when you dial your frequency into the receiver mm-hmm. and tells us that you know Charlie's alive somewhere and we'd go and find him and find you know, Mel would find which hole he was living in or she was living in or whatever and they, we found they were, were using a lot of rabbit burrows which is important because of course we wanted to eat rabbits and then have an impact on rabbits which would give us our native plants back but then their collars when they're still for a while will transmit a different beeping sound and that means that the animal the collar hasn't moved for some hours and that was happening too frequently and then we started finding dead quolls and the head of one here or the remains of one there and and we discovered that feral cats were the big issue. And we published a paper uh, on catastrophic predation. And because what Catherine found is when you took a DNA swab from the dead quoll and, and then you caught cat in an area that you thought was doing the damage and you killed it and took some of its DNA, the laboratory was able to marry those two together. And we worked out that we had individual cat kill two quolls, another one killed three, another one killed three, and another one killed two. They're all large male cats. And they only stopped because we stopped them, because the team caught that cat and, and euthanized it. If we hadn't stopped them, they would have just keep going through our quolls and would have, it would have been a much more desperate situation. But we've got through that and now we're using a uh, little sausage bait from Western Australia called Eradicat. Got a little bit of poison in it called 1080, which is, comes from the plants in Western Australia. It's made in the laboratory in America, but we use it and can use it quite safely. In the last three years, um, the Environment Department here in South Australia up there has done a really great job with the team with just dropping these sausages on the ground. And when times are really tough, cats will eat them. If times are good and there's other things to eat, cats won't. And they've found to kill a lot of feral cats up there and the quolls have been able to breed so much better and and improved in a much greater way. So now we've had the last three years, we've had our best captures ever. And the quolls are expanding now in range up further up to the north area of the Flinders Ranges National Park. Also, Arkaba, the station to the south, which is conservation land now. They found them down there. And, you know, while we're pushing up the weeds when we're dead and buried, hopefully they'll just keep on spreading. If we keep dealing with the foxes and the cats, which is what that national park has done and is doing, these native animals have a chance to live and, and be back in them where they used to be. Is that going to be an everlasting thing that you're always going to be trying to eradicate the foxes and cats up there? Or do you think that... It will all control itself after a certain time. No, it will never control itself. So my passion in life is to try and find an answer to these foxes and cats. So I love animals. I grew up as a kid. My seventh birthday was at London Zoo. and I grew up in the Territory with some fantastic couple of birdo blokes called John McKean and Tony Hertog taking me out in areas which is now Kakadu chasing white-breasted seagulls and trying to fish for barramundi, which I never caught. I reckon they're mythical. But, you know, (laughs) I was a kid with fishing lures and no idea. I just grew up the love of animals and nature and I just wanted to save them and I wanted to have them back and whatever else. And what I learned during my, my journey in my life is that the way to do that in Australia, Australia is unique in that way. Like New Zealand and, say, the island of Guam and Hawaii, our ecology is driven by pest animals. Um, other nations, they're not. Africa's not. You know, North America's not. They've got you know, wolves and mountain lions and other things. It's, the system is, is more intact. But ours, with our very unique marsupial fauna, New Zealand has, you know, only one native mammal, the bat. Ours are driven by pest animals. So you don't manage the pest animals, you don't manage the ecology. 
And that's what we're learning more and more about our plants with rabbits and what the foxes and cats do. So no, I need a disease to kill foxes. I need a, what's called a biocontrol, something that will kill the foxes dramatically like the rabbit diseases have done for the rabbits. And then we, we can hopefully take those fences away and stop throwing out the baits. But if we don't do that for foxes and cats, then this is a battle we just have to keep fighting, trying to keep them behind wire or in baited areas, what we call a chemical fence, while somebody hopefully comes up with an answer to the fox and the cat because they just, they're just too vulnerable. They just can't survive as populations or as species. So, and I choose to save the species. As I say, I'm a conservationist, not a preservationist. Mm. My job's to conserve, not to keep everything alive. That doesn't belong. I make that choice. Some people can't. I can. I'm sorry, I don't choose foxes and cats and rabbits and feral pigs and camels and donkeys and all these things that are damaging the environment. You know, red-eared slider tortoises and cane toads and all the things that we you know, stupidity brought to this country. My job is to try and get rid of them and try and make my native animals have a safer place to live and breed and survive and not, not, not go extinct. We have the worst mammal extinction rate in the world for a lot of reasons, including tractors and chains that just chain down the scrub. We've done that very well and still are. But also um, disease and uh, these pest animals we've brought in so we can hunt them with our red coats in the period of you know, in the 19th century when they wanted to hunt foxes on horseback. So we've made some crazy mistakes. And my job is to, my passion is to try and fix those mistakes. Yeah, it's great to hear. Um, oh, here comes the rain. Hail. It's hail. It is too. We're so aware of land clearing and introduced pests. But the story of the Western Quoll is a positive one, which we often talk about because it leaves hope to there being other successes. And I think the spotted tail quoll on Kangaroo Island, that should go ahead. That sounds like a great idea. It is. I think it's a good idea. I think it's worth going ahead. But as a society, we have to make those choices. There are people on Kangaroo Island who have chickens. Quolls love chickens. We can deal with that. We can build a fence. We can help them to build a fence. We can overcome the problems that are inherent in trying to fix nature. But we need to talk them through. We need to work through the issues. And then we need to find the money and the animals and see if we can put it back together. So, yeah, us crazy conservationists can come up with ideas to put animals back. But not everyone agrees with us. We've got to do a lot of talking and a lot of you know, diplomacy to try and bring people along with us on the journey. And I, I had to do that with Western Quoll. I had a meeting one day at the Stirling pub with a mate of mine who sadly took his life, who was part of my team, Damien Pierce and rest in peace and um, a guy called Mark Lethbridge and they sat me down in the Sterling Hotel in those early days of whatever year it was 2011 and it hadn't happened that year or 2012 and hadn't happened that year and they basically said Dave slow down you got to you got to let us catch up you know you've been on this for years you got to let people catch up with you with your passion with your dream and start to get to the same point with you are with understanding what benefits they could have to the environment and to understand what benefits they could have to the environment of people it's bringing an animal back to their country, which used to be there. The dreaming story for the for the Western Quoll comes from Central Australia all the way down. So they talk about they it got its spots by being speared because it had a relationship with with a goanna. So there's all this mythology and stories, and that was important for me to do that because I grew up with Aboriginal people in Northern Territory. But they were telling me to slow down, Dave. And so yeah, we can have our ideas, but sometimes it takes a bit of time for government and the public to come on board to work through those those ideas and, and come hopefully come round to our, our way of thinking. Why does it take so long to get governments on board sometimes? Is it a, a money thing? or? I, I used to say to people, I began my career, I began, began working for state government here in South Australia in 1991 and I, I believe I began as a public servant and I ended up as a ministerial servant. And I think there's a subtle difference there. 
I just wanted to help the public and the community and in the environment. I just wanted to make the world a better place. I still do. That's still what drives me, not making a fortune or whatever. I just, you know, when you love animals, as Kathy, my wife, would say to people, he doesn't do it for the money. Trust me on that one. <laughs> um, you know, if you want to do that, be a banker or something. I think it's risk. It's that, that four-letter word, risk. So I think um, you, need, you need a minister who, or a government who is willing to, to take that risk and wear the flak. You know, our, our, our National Environment Minister Hunt, a couple of years ago now, said we're going to cull two million feral cats. He took a very controversial issue and boldly made a statement or a, or a goal that takes gumption. And sometimes we need, I think most of us want our leaders to be like that, to have that boldness. But they need people like us who are out there who know the, the stories to be able to put them up to them and try and convince them of the value of, you know, for me... The, if, I was, if we were able to put spotted tail quolls back on Kangaroo that would be a tourism thing. I mean, it's Australia's leopard. You know, it's a four, six kilo killing machine that likes to eat possums, and they've got lots of possums over there, and, you know, young tamars and whatever else it can get in its mouth. And uh, it's one of our major tourism destinations in South Australia. So I can, I can argue for it. But like I said, there are people on Kangaroo who haven't even heard this crazy idea from Peacock who need the time to work through that. They will have chickens. You can, we can tell them we can make a fence, a floppy top fence, That'll keep quolls out and put a hot wire on it and whatever else. We can do that. Um, should they bear the cost of that? Probably not. Maybe we should be able to help them because we want to take benefits and they're going to wear the cost. So we need to just work through those issues. But I think it's a good idea, personally. But then I'm a crazy conservationist. Yeah. But you've, you've said in shows in the past, haven't you, like when people blame some wildlife for getting into your chickens and killing your chicken, it's not wildlife's fault. It's you, you haven't created an enclosure that's good enough to keep them out. No, that's true. I guess on KI they don't have any foxes and they don't have quolls, so, so they, the they've had it too good for too to long. Yeah, yeah. Right. Although they have cats. They do have cats, and, mm. and, they, and they do have to manage the cats. And so things like guardian dogs, like maremas, um, these big white dogs that can keep, or have, a, have an effect on keeping dingoes out of sheep flocks and stuff like that. There are strategies. So there are solutions we can offer up to this crazy idea to sort of help alleviate those issues. But yeah, Ken Grohl, as you probably know, is now under a plan to try and get rid of the cats off the island. I'm actually on the steering committee to try and help guide that. It's never been done before. And the biggest one now is Dirkark Hog Island off WA, and that's 52,000 hectares, or 62,000 hectares. That's the biggest one in the world. And we've just, the West Australian government's just pulled it off. And they're able to do it because it's a very thin island, relatively speaking, and put one fence across the middle, make two management units, and you can sort of say, okay, that's your area, Steve, and that up north, that's your area, Adrian, off you go, get rid of the cats. Well, Kangaroo Island is not that shape. It's more, you know... That where we're going to start on the Dudley Peninsula is a round area and there's school buses and there's schools and there's kids and there's chickens and dogs and people and, and so that just adds a complexity to it. So yeah, there would be a, a fantastic bunch of values to, to get rid of cats off Kangaroo Island. One of the main issues that people may not be aware is that the cats carry two parasites and those parasites impact on animals and people. Toxoplasmosis can can cause human abortion, early term abortion. Cats are the only that parasite will not survive, will not reproduce if it doesn't pass through a cat. Some stage in its life cycle, it has to pass through a cat. The other one over there is called sarcocystis, and that causes cysts in the muscles of sheep. And the farmers on Kangaroo Island uh, have to battle that quite extensively. And again, no cats, no sarcocystis. So we, there are values to get rid of cats off Kangaroo Island for both, you know, environmental reasons, stop them eating the bloody birds and and, and our chance to put native animals back that used to be there that we've got rid of or we've lost. But it needs to get rid of cats off of an area of land that has never been done before anywhere in the world. 
nothing that size. And we're talking 440,000 hectares. So we need new ideas and we need the funds to do that, such a strategy. Potential is after people can make more money out of their tourism, sheep farming. That exactly, yeah. Yeah, better out of it. yeah, that's right. So we, there's a benefits for the tourism industry. There are benefits for the for the farming industry, the sheep farming industry. There's benefits for everybody, but it requires the community to come to terms with um, the restrictions now on on having cats on Kangaroo Island, which most people are, are very fine with. Most, no, no, over ninety, I think it's ninety four percent of the island community were pro getting rid of cats. So there's this high support on the island to do that. But as conservationists, we can think of animals that um, we could potentially put back over there. I've been having those conversations just recently with a kangaroo island land for wildlife. You know, Pat Hodgins and his and beautiful wife Heidi. You know, we, um, we we throw crazy ideas around about animals that used to be there that maybe we can do, and they are having those ideas. But that's what it's like in Australia. Be it on an island like Kangaroo Island or the whole island called Australia, the size of the continental United States. And that's what I think people need to understand. I was at a conference in in Nevada some years ago, and the the guy asked me how many people were there in Australia. And I said at that point, eighteen million. And he said, "Man, we got that between Los Angeles and Mexico, living on the coast." <laughs> and that was sobering to me. You know, the, a country the size of, the, of ours, basically, and our whole population was between Los Angeles and Mexico, living on the coast. He said, and yet people think we're going to control fox and cats with a cat trap or a fox bait. You know, that's why we need disease. That's why Khaleesi virus for rabbits was so life-changing for me as a young ranger in the Flinders Ranges because it just went through my national park and other national parks that I was meant to manage I didn't even get to because I didn't have the time or the resources to get there up in northern South Australia and just destroyed the rabbits. And then we had the plants come back and I was on TV with people and I'm pointing to these bullock bush plants. Look at this little seedling coming up here. You know, this probably hasn't recruited since Mixo went through in 1950, 50, in the early 50s. Oh, really? You know? Yeah, you know, this is really palatable and the rabbits just nail it. And here it is, it's growing back out of this rabbit burrow. And that's, for me, was just really exciting to, to see. But that's what that disease did. If you can find the right disease and it's safe and it's humane and doesn't impact anything else, that's what we call a good biocontrol. And then, of course, what we hear about is a complete cock-ups when they do things all well, cane toes, even though they were told by the scientists at the time, don't do it. Cane toes had failed in Hawaii and failed in the Caribbean and the cane farmers still did it at the time in 1935 and... Now we've got another problem to solve. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult area, it's an area where we can make massive benefits for the country. Do you think we should import elephants into the top end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. Okay. No, yeah. <laughs> but that is a suggestion, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. We were talking about that paper where the guy talked about introducing elephants to control gamba grass. So, no, there are. And that's, and that's the, the situation that we face in our industry of, of pest management and especially in the area of biocontrols like as, as your listeners are probably aware of now there's a carp biocontrol being investigated extensively for the river, the river Murray and Darling River and I think it's going to be a fantastic godsend for our for our river system sure we're going to have some issues to deal with at the beginning of getting rid of dead carp should it be released but the benefits after we get through that teething pain We'll have it forever and carp at a much lower biomass in the river and much less murkiness in the river and all those sorts of benefits. So, and, and sadly, we get cane toes thrown back in our face or things, what if, you know, what if. And I got that with the quolls and the flinders. What if, Dave? What if the quolls eat this? What if the quolls do that? I got all the time, often from conservationists, from biologists, not from generally the public. I got so sick of hearing it because you can just throw your hands up in the air and go, okay, let's do nothing then. We'll take no risk. We'll achieve nothing. But we won't, nothing will go wrong. And as a society, as conservationists, we have that 
that, that decision to make. Um, do we try something um, that we don't have all the answers for, like the, the uh, suppressed herpes virus for carp? Uh, there's a herpes virus out there for rabbits that I know of. I'd love to be funded to research it and see whether it's going to pass our tests or we throw it in the bin. Um, it could be something else to help us get rabbits right down below that level where we can get our native plants back and the native animals that fit on those plants. But, um, you know, the media and other people like to throw back cane toads in our face or whatever mistakes that were made when people weren't, there weren't the checks and balances that they are now, the quarantine and the, and the, the stuff we've learned. We're a lot smarter now. So there'd be a lot more science now. There's a whole industry. The yeah, it's a whole industry. Um, and, and it is. There are critical things like animal welfare. They have to be humane. Like you wouldn't do Mixo again. I'd do it. I'd do it again tomorrow. It saved our country $53 billion in agricultural benefits coming out of the Second World War. So, you know, the war finishes in 1945. 1950, let Mixo go. It has a massive impact on rabbits across the country. And our wool clip and benefits went up markedly and they were able to count and work that out in this paper, this scientific research that our colleague Brian Cook did of some economists. And they worked out that Mixo saved our country from 1950 to 1995 when Khaleesi, when rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus was released, they, that saved our country $53 billion. And from 2000, uh, 1995 to 2011, when they were both together, they couldn't unentangle the benefits from each of the two diseases, but they calculated another $17 billion. Now, it cost us as a, as a nation to put Khaleesi virus, mixed on what we call rabbit hemorrhagic disease virus, RHDV, people with the public know it as Khaleesi virus. Our investment for that, for seven, a good part of $17 billion in environmental benefits, oh, oh, sorry, in, in uh, agricultural benefits, forget the environmental benefits, which we're now getting papers on on native rodents in the central Australia coming back, Reese Peddler's work, we cost us $15 million, $16 oh, wow. million. So as a nation, we invest 15 to $16 million, get back a good part of $17 billion, Okay, and that's just for the agriculture. I go, hey, not, not worth it, is it? <laughs> what a stupid idea. Yeah, let's do that again. Why, oh, maybe. why won't they do mixy, myxomatosis anymore? Oh, because it would, it would fail the humaneness test. Because oh, okay. it's, an, it's yeah, a nasty yeah. disease. Sorry, yeah. yeah, what it does to rabbits, I mean, yeah. it's, it's not. But although, I, I come from England and I used to see it every year yeah. in England, the mixy yeah. thing. Yeah, so. Well, that's a very interesting device because it's um, Dr. Peter Kerr, who's been the Australian, or not the world, he's not Australian, he's a world expert on it, on um, myxomatosis. He's been doing a lot of research. So I get people in my, um, when I was employed by state government, you know, you'd get people handing us in dead rabbit samples and I'd send them off to Peter, the mixo samples, and he's, put him through lab rabbits and he's actually finding in, in some of the lab trials that the lab rabbits actually weren't showing the symptoms. They were dying quite quickly and with what we call asymptomatic as in no symptoms, very few symptoms. So some strains of mix actually may tick the humaneness bucket now. But no, that's where uh, rabbit hemorrhage disease virus is so different. This thing will kill a rabbit in sort of 48 hours to 56 hours, two to three days. We have a little saying where we call it makes Ebola look like a joke. If you're a rabbit, by the time you know you're sick, you're dead. I mean, it's quite quick and it appears to be quite humane. Looking at the eye there, I've seen rabbits die of Khaleesi before. And it's, again, saved us a massive amount. And the environmental benefits, which my colleagues worked out in northern South Australia on some rare rodents and the little Crestail Mulgara, uh, what are they called, the Amperta, these fantastic little Australian animals, they've all come back in massive numbers and range increases right across. And as recent... And Rob and the others all wrote and Catherine that paper. We don't see that in the world anywhere for recovery of an endangered animal. You do not see that on that sort of scale that they these guys wrote up in this paper for Natomi's Fuscus and Natomi's Alexis little hopping mice and the Amperta. 
and the plains, plains rat, these native animals. Why? Because now they've got grass to eat and seeds to eat because the rabbits haven't eaten it all. And the little Malgar, the Amperta, he can eat little insects and stuff because they're there now because they've got grass to eat because the rabbits haven't eaten it all. So this is basic ecology, you know. You, you've got plants back because you haven't got rabbits eating it all. Then you get the insects back. Then you've got the animals that eat the insects back. And so as they wrote in their paper, you know, if you're trying to recover elephants in Africa or tigers in you know, eastern Russia or wherever it might be in the world, never do you see people saying, hey, we had a fantastic success. We got our, our species back 600% or something. And that's what they're reporting for these little animals. And what we do, we put out a rabbit virus. We didn't breed one more hopping mouse. We didn't do anything with mice. All we did was deal with the pest animals. Deal with something that was eating that, that food exactly. source. Exactly, eating their food. So do we get to a point where these all these small animals that you're talking about are going to start being too much because there's not a predator for them? Wouldn't that be a nice problem to have? It, it would, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was in Wapina, in the Flinders Ranges in northern South Australia, in, uh, I was there in 95 and 96, and the project's now called Bounce Back, and I was the, the first guy in that project. And my job was mainly to... The project was set up by my colleagues, uh, Peter Alexander and others, to recover the yellow-footed rock wallaby. And I don't know if you've ever seen one, but you... It is the most beautiful, beautiful. animal. And oh, actually, Adrian's got a couple yeah, here. Couple yeah, yeah. <laughs> my daughter had one sit on her back the other day when she was here working. Got a fantastic photo. <laughs> you know, they were they were a very common in South Australia. When Hayward built his run up at, in the northern Flinders Ranges there at Aruna Valley in whatever it was, 1856 or something, put his sheep there and made a fortune and went back to England, he had to build a wall around his veggie garden to keep the rock wallabies out. You know, when I went in 95, Peter Copley, my colleague, had estimated there were, I think, 80 to 100 left on the park. They were on their last legs because goats were eating their food, rabbits were eating their food, and foxes were eating them. Foxes being one of the main issues. So my job was to lay 3,000 fox baits four times a year, and the, the team, environment department, have done that ever since for 20 years now. There are now rock wallabies living not far from where I used to live in my old house up there at Wilpena. There are now, I never saw a goanna. In all my years, I spent most of my time in a motorbike mapping rabbit warrants for the bulldozer to destroy. I never saw a sanguana, Gould's sanguana. I never saw an echidna in two years, and I spent most of my time in the field, which is why it was such a great job. You know, I had a rifle and a motorbike, and I was out saving the world, saving the environment and from the pest animals. I never saw those animals. Now we catch them in our quail traps. Set a trap to catch a quail and go, oh, bloody goanna. Oh, an echidna, you know? And now they're what cause why we got rid of their predators. Foxes eat echidnas. I've shot a fox that had a echidna in its stomach. The biggest impact on tortoises on the River Murray are foxes. Tortoises come ashore to breed and the foxes eat them. Biggest impact on sea turtles. One of the biggest impacts is feral pigs. People go, what the hell? Feral pigs hoover up turtle eggs' nests, just mm. empty them. I have a great photo, which is very graphic, of the stomach contents of a feral pig full of young turtles. When I was in the Flinders in 95, in 94 I think it was the first time my then boss, Trevor Naismith, was bold enough to bring in sporting shooters. And the Sporting Shooters Association of Australia, the double S-double-A's they're called. I had some fun times with those bunch of lunatics. We've had some great times together, basically killing the pest animals to save the native animals. And those guys were brought into the Gammon Ranges in those days to do the first goat shoot on park by using hunters. And those of us here who were park rangers thought, come oh, on, this could all go completely pear-shaped. And it hasn't. The guys are fantastic, and they've done a really good job over the years of, of helping to assist the helicopter and the, and the trapping of the goats and all that management of the goats and the foxes and the cats. They aren't a solution themselves. They understand that. But they are. Well, if you, you'll get foxes and cats that won't take a bait. But if you get a good shooter, 
with a good light and they know how to not miss because once they miss the fox cat often has been taught and they won't come back they'll see that spotlight and won't won't be stupid enough to look at it too long those guys can help you get those animals and control those pest animals so yeah in some national parks in, in australia that's not allowed in ours in some our state government has been bold enough and under leadership of people like trevor and others to try it and that's i guess that's the theme for this talk is the willingness to try the willingness to take a risk so let's put western quolls back in Flinders. Let's look at putting spotted tail quolls back on Kangaroo Island. Let's look at putting other animals back that used to be there. Eastern quolls in the Adelaide Hills. Wow. Used to be there. Please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I was telling you before, I've spent many, many, many hours, hundreds of hours chasing down historical accounts. And I've got accounts of quoll in a bed at Norwood in 1890. And a Norwood, for people who don't know, is a... Is a city suburb here in Adelaide now. Smack bang in the city. Right in the middle, yeah. There's a theatre over the road, the Norwood Cinema Complex, lots of cafes in 1890, a quoll in a bed, a native cat in a bed in Norwood. Yeah, they were all through this area and we just wiped them out, we and the foxes. But also I wrote a paper with with Ian Abbott, my colleague, uh, some years ago where we reported quolls being plaguing in plague numbers around Australia, like crazy numbers. 550 killed at Mount Gambier in 1856 in a property called Glencoe. And not all killed were counted. That'd be like a boom and bust thing, wouldn't it? Very much so. Very much so. Yes. You get the rains, you get the insects, you get the yeah. And actually, actually, yeah, it's very astute of you, Adrian. Actually, went back looking for the rainfall records of 1856 of Mount Gambier. Funnily enough, they're not. They don't exist. To try and see is that why that that account happened, and you know, and we don't know. I mean, my my record fox shoot in in a night was 63, and that was one night with my with my mate Frank. Again, with this project called now called Bounce Back, we're shooting in an area that wasn't fox baited, the neighbouring land on that station, and we caught a, we shot a stupid number of foxes that night. Frank broke that record in 2008 on a station called Mott Pena. He shot 88 in a night. We don't always understand why these aggregation events happen. In those cases with foxes, it was unknown. Um, there was a roost shooter operating on one station in the, in, when I had this shoot in 1996, but then 2008 when Frank shot Mott Pena, we don't know why those foxes got together. For the quolls, no, we don't know, but we do know that they were extremely abundant in the environment. They were just very common. They have six babies, the Easterns, and um, the Westerns are meant to have six, but we did have a female up in the Flinders with seven. The Northerns can have more. They can have eight and stuff. Seven? Yeah, yeah, we had a quoll with seven. They only got six nipples, haven't they? Work it out. <laughs> wow. So that was that was a, yeah, an amazing little story where the... Because yeah. you have often have students, like interns, helping you out and to go, okay, Adrian and Steve, off you go. Here's your bag of gear. Go and check this load of traps. And you come back and you've only never seen a quoll before. You've had a little bit of an induction. You come back, oh, we caught a quoll, whoever it was, because they were microchipped and got a, a collar on. I don't remember what her name was. And uh, and we counted seven joeys in the pouch. And you go, you well, you got Steve and say, you, you idiot. You, you, you can't count. I've only got six teats. <laughs> Any, anyway, that, that was a sad story because her collar went into, it was a female, of course, her collar went into mortality. A cat had got her again, and um, which is the issue we faced. Or, um, the only issue. No, it was, wasn't food. It wasn't den sites. It was bloody cats. And so they went back to the tree where she were denned them because they ended up getting found at the bottom of the tree one of the little joeys was you know there still alive of course bloody hungry because mum wasn't there to feed her anymore she wasn't come back with a teats full of milk from feeding on a rabbit or grasshopper or whatever she'd been out catching and they ended up retrieving the whole litter and blow us down there were seven seven little joeys steve was right well, I don't know what they were doing. <laughs> and and I, sadly, when they got her car, the mum's carcass, the cat had, cats like to eat um, the entrails because they're rich organs. 
and they'd taken all the mammary tissue away. So we, there weren't teats for us to count to check, but yeah, the student was right. They counted seven little jelly beans at some point, and those seven jelly beans became seven little juveniles that we were actually, through the Adelaide Zoo, able to rear. The keepers at Adelaide Zoo were great, and they reared them up, and I took them back up, and we let them all go again. <laughs> Just and, so Daniel Saliba from the Adelaide Zoo is here at the moment. Well done, Daniel. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. well, I've, had, I've held a baby eastern quail in my hand, and I was surprised it was a, um, a bit bigger than a pinky. But the spots are actually part of their skin, not just their fur. Yeah, wow. Yeah, it comes out comes out quite early. Yeah, yeah, you can see it quite early. I don't, I don't know with skin or fur, but it would have to be skin because I guess it's, I don't think it's the early parts of fur. But yeah, I've got some great photos, you know, um, uh, of the quolls from the project team up there that they got. In fact, when I do my quoll talk for <laughs> the university students or other people, they there's a bit of footage where my my mate Pat Hodgins has got this great footage where he's talking and he's looking in this quolls pouch and there the quolls are and they're moving around and their little spots are there so they're the most beautiful animals they're just fantastic and you just can't help but love them and i love their attitude i love the fact they've got sharp pointy teeth and they want to rip you yeah. but not us you know they you know you open the bag and they just look at you and then you they, they run off into the dark or into the into the early morning we we always open the traps very early in the morning and so they they're back to their dens before it gets uh, too light and yeah unlike a cat or a house mouse that wants to rip your face off or a black rat or something introduce rat yeah, a lot of our native animals are pretty gentle. And, of course, that's their downfall often. Like a bilby runs around with a little tail up in there going, eat me, eat me, you know. <laughs> Here I am, here's my flag. <laughs> um, but the most beautiful animals, you know, it's a hard choice. But the the, the bilbies in, in southwest Queensland, those guys out there, the Stribler Downs, Queensland National Parks, I think they had a stupid number of cats out there they shot. And they were living on, on the plague rats, the Australian plague rats, and then they the plague rats disappeared quite overnight almost and the cats switched onto the bilbies. And they've got a photo there of a dead cat and a dead bilby. The cat was feeding on the bilby that it had just killed, and then they killed the cat. And yeah, it's not it's not nice, but it's that's the reality of, of conservation in Australia, and they're the problems we have to solve. And like I'd like people to understand, it is such a vast, big country that we have, and there's so few people out there. They mostly live on the coast in Sydney and Melbourne and you know Adelaide and Perth. You know, it's not a big population spread all over the country to go and use some sort of mechanical device or poison to kill cats and foxes and cane toads and camels and stuff you know these viruses these diseases which nature has out there if we can find the right one and that does the job properly and humanely and spreads of its own accord like khaleesi has done for rabbits and mixo has done for rabbits the nation benefits economically socially and environmentally in in enormous ways how optimistic are you that we'll find something i'm I'm always optimistic. If we don't try, we don't have the Cactoblastis caterpillar to eat the prickly pear of Queensland in the 60s and return all that farming land to farming. It was just completely dominated by prickly pear cactus. We don't have rabbits and to the levels they are now. And people were walking off their stations in the 18th, in the you know, mid 19th, late 19th century, in the 1880s, 1890s, through to the early 20th century. People would walk off their land. The rabbits took everything. They just would become destitute. We had the Sand Rift Act in South Australia of 1923. Why? Because the inland Australia was blowing away. The sand would sandblast the train that was going north. You know, they wouldn't last. The carriages wouldn't last that long because the sand would just sandblast the metal. We don't remember where we've come from. And we've only got there because some scientists have found some diseases to kill the worst pest animals in our nation's battles. And so that's what we face. And so am I hopeful? Yeah, I am. I'm not hopeful if we don't look. Because if you don't look, you don't find. 
pretty it's it's a fait accompli. So people like me who are crazy enough to to look and try and find, yeah, I think we can. And like I said, there is a, a herpes virus for rabbits out there. It turned up in Northern America and Canada in the uh, early 90s. We've never brought that into quarantine here. We've never tested it. It would take millions of dollars. But like I said, 15 million we spent on Khaleesi. We've got a good part of 17 billion back and counting. That's only up to 2011. It's now 2019, eight more years of benefits, and it will go on for the next hundreds of years, presumably. There will be the battle between the rabbit and the virus, and we've seen that. I've been studying that for now for 20 years. And we see the virus change, and we see the rabbit's genetics change, and we see the virus change, and that's what they're both trying to do. The rabbit's trying to stay alive, the virus is trying to kill it. you know. And that's the arms race between the two. But rabbits are at a level now that has been a godsend for our country. Sadly, it's still not enough for a lot of native plants like... Uh, the Eremophilus, these beautiful bushes up in Central Australia that we researched with the students and the acacias like Mulga and the uh, the Alocasiorina down the Coorong, we worked out down there, half a rabbit a hectare was enough to stop those plants recruiting. We, we worked down there on the common wombats and found that the biggest issue for common wombats surviving were the young wombats getting through summer and they weren't doing it because the rabbits were eating all their grasses. The rabbits take out the native grasses, the cypress and the danthonia grass, the wallaby grass and the kangaroo grass and stuff and um, spear grasses and stuff and the young wombats don't survive summer so you don't get the wombat population recovering you want to save wombats kill rabbits you want to save this kill rabbits you want to save that kill rabbits yeah it's funny isn't it that they are the worst non-human pest species aren't they the rabbits people talk about cats and foxes and they should yeah but rabbits they're up there when i went to the feral cat task force meeting in canberra some years ago with the uh, threatened species commissioner of the time and others and we all sat in the room all us scientists who have interest and expertise in this area i presented data and my colleague john reed was there he's the guy who's developed the trap to spit poison on on cats because cats don't want to eat a bait normally so john's got this great idea and 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 a device which is improving all the time to do that and john and i were there and without even planning it we both put up a graph he put up a graph of, of rabbit numbers and cat numbers from his area up near Roxby Downs in northern South Australia. And I put up some data that we had seen from the Flinders Ranges, where when the rabbits got slaughtered by the Khaleesi virus, cats and fox numbers went down because that's their main prey base. So, yeah, it's very important to control rabbits. You control rabbits, you have some control over foxes and cats. Of course, you throw, throw quolls or bilbies back in the system. They're all protein. They'll switch to and eat that if they can. But in a lot of our areas, like the Flinders Ranges National Park, when I was there, there wasn't anything for the cats to eat. You know, there was nothing to switch to. There was a few fat-tailed dunarts and things like that, but there was nothing else because rabbits had taken it all. It was a rabbit-dominated ecosystem. Take out the rabbits, then the cat numbers just crashed, and they have nowhere near the numbers that they were in those days. But they're still a massive, massive problem across the country. In your research, when you're looking at historical records of quolls, did anything stand out to you that was a bit amazing? <laughs> oh, yes. There's so many. I mean, it's just it's really bizarre that what people... I mean, these public people probably didn't think of it at the time. They just write into their local paper, wherever it was in Australia, about um, what they had battled with or their thing. And, you know, you know the quoll in the bed at Norwood, I've always remembered. Um, the one, the, the 550 quolls being killed in a day and a night at Glencoe in Mount Gambier in 1856, I remember. That's just phenomenal numbers. We, but, but barrel traps, they used to have a, a cask, like an old wine cask, and uh, put a flip-top metal lid in the top of it and fill the cask with water and hang a bit of meat over the top and fill the cask with quolls overnight just drown them cask traps they were quite common in western victoria and places 
Glencoe had one under the tree that they used to kill their, hang their beasts from. So, you'd, you know, you didn't have a butcher. The butcher was that tree out the back where you shot a beast or a sheep and you hung it and cut it up and that was your meat for the next month or week. Or and the last thing you wanted were bloody quolls chewing off the hindquarters and that's what happened. So the Glencoe, because of that frustration, were having their whips, anything that had animal fat on it, anything, leather or whatever, was all chewed up. These were the battles they had. Yeah, the paper I'm working on at the moment is quolls chewing on dead humans. So... Um, <laughs> I found, uh, I had this, my father-in-law created a database to store all these historical records that I had found. So I've reviewed over 22,000 accounts in newspapers where the word native cat appears. Sometimes it's applied to a rock or a horse with a you know, spotted pattern on the horse, like an Appaloosa horse or something. So I throw them away. But I've kept over 3,000, 3,300. And I've indexed them all by different topics, what they might talk about, diet or breeding, you know, greater than six young, because I knew that's, you know, more than six teats sort of stories. So many hours work. Is this something you do in your spare time? Yeah, yeah. They don't pay me, sadly, to do this. This is what crazy conservationists, passionate people do, don't we? <laughs> We've all got our passions for snakes or spiders or birds or whatever. And yeah, uh, sadly, they don't pay me millions to do this. I, it's just my hobby, my passion, to try and uh, add to our understanding of quolls as just one species. And it all started because I wanted to put them back in the flinders to save the plants, you know, to save the ecology up there. So yeah, you know, I end up finding... I think it's 105 records or accounts where they talked about Adrian died on the road beside Mylor, you know, and <laughs> Steve found him and his face was missing, you know, the ears or the nose or whatever. Often the face was the face was the most common feature to be chewed off by the quolls. And they called it the native cats. Mostly it was assumed, like Steve didn't see your face being chewed off by a quoll. He just found your body lying beside the road with your swag. Because often swag, this is a period in the, I mean, the, the accounts begin in, 1831 to 1916, these, these, these accounts of quolls chewing on dead humans. Would you have had a name tag on? Because I wouldn't have known it was Adrian. <laughs> yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> Maybe it's by his swag or something in your, his, or his horse. There was a clue. <laughs> because it would be, if, say, Adrian didn't return home on his horse. You know, he went for a ride from here in Mylord to, say, the local town or the local pub. You know, generally, it was a pub. And he was smashed out of his face and <laughs> fell, yeah, fell off that, the horse. Adrian. Yeah, you know, something like that happened. And they, when they went looking for him because he hadn't turned up home, they found him beside the road. And, and it was as fast as within a few hours of his body, of him being deceased. And I think that's partly because the quolls were just so abundant in the environment at the time. And they're hungry. What the hell do I eat? It's protein. Okay, it's a dead human, but still protein. And so they ate what they could. Um, but if, so mostly it was assumed when they saw the, the disfigured body, they assumed it was the quolls because the quolls were just such a ubiquitous part of their environment. We struggle to understand it now because they just don't exist mm. unless we can put them back in places like the Flinders. But um, in a couple of cases, a policeman in one case where he was called out to, to a dead body, he saw the quolls run away, seven of them, ran into a tree. So they just burnt the tree down, as you would, because right. they're quolls, mm. you know. <laughs> pestilence of the day and another case they found some quolls on another body yeah i've actually put a warning on the front of the paper beware this paper contains graphic descriptions of human death and disfigurement so all of these records that you're talking about because they wouldn't have kept proper records back then they are all newspapers they're all newspapers yeah and they were uh, that's amazingly they were uh, willing to write it in the paper that there was adrian dead beside the road at milo with this and this missing and and all the graphic details and then sometimes it's they're really i've got to be careful because i think you get not callous but you read it over and over again but there are infants you know stillborn child mm. in, in a period where that was shameful 
So they would go and hide the stillborn child, bury it somewhere, and of course the dingoes might dig it up or the, or the local dogs and the quolls would get to it or whatever and they'd be mentioned in the article. As, as assumed, that's what took the features off the dead infant or the murdered woman in Sydney or the suicides. I mean, there are graphic suicides, uh, reports of suicide in the period, a period where there's very limited social support. We have, you know, welfare now. We have social agencies to help people. Those things uh, weren't always there. And if you were destitute in the period, if someone you didn't knock on someone's door and they give you a, a meal in the middle of winter, you died. Became coal food. You became coal food on the road from Ballarat to Melbourne or whatever. You know, trying to get to the gold fields and something went wrong. You were uh, murdered for your gold or, you know, and alcoholism. You know, was you know, there's quite a lot of accounts where people were smashed out of it. But one account, the one that's going to be my hook is the police officer in the Ned Kelly gang. He had an issue with a, a missing ear or part of an ear that they attributed to quolls and also a spearing of a, of a, a Captain Thomas in northern Tasmania in what they called the Black War. So when Tasmania government and the people went to war against the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. It's a terrible part of our history, which not a lot of people know about. In this case, um, these Aboriginals speared these soldiers, and when they found his body, Captain Thomas had been disfigured by quolls, which were common, still are, well, not Eastern's anymore. Um, my colleague, Bron Fancourt, did a PhD on the decline of Eastern quolls in Tasmania. We a very common species is now needing a lot of help to try and, and get, bring it back. I was really happy that you were trying to, you, know, you were focusing your time on bringing quolls back <laughs> until the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah. well, I think you're safe, mate. I don't think you're going to get yourself your face chewed off no, by a quoll. Yeah. yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> well don't die out in the, in the quoll if, he finds, if you find your body in with his... My luck, just, though. Yeah, clean up the evidence. <laughs> There's actually a, an account in a paper, a recent paper in the 1990s, where they found a quoll scat with human hair in it and they never found the source. And I can guarantee, well, I can't guarantee it, but my very strong assumption would be that there's a dead body somewhere where that, in the home range of that spotted tail quoll in, the, uh, I think it was the Gippsland area of, of Victoria, that quoll found that human body and did just what these people reported on, had a feed and crapped out some hair. And when some scientists were doing some quoll scat analysis, they found human hair. It makes me think if or, or when the spotted tail quoll type of quoll <laughs> is reintroduced into Kangaroo Island. I mean, the overwhelming amount of roadkill on the island, it's got all the Tamar wallabies yeah. and no foxes to control them. And even despite the, the massive culls that occur, it won't be uncommon to see a tiger quoll or two ripping apart the carcass of a Tamar wallaby on the side of the road. Uh, the tourists will be stopping and photographing yeah. and be awesome. Yeah, it could, it could be. And of course, the, the downside is that you'll probably see the body of the tiger quoll then as well, the spotted tail that's been hit by yeah. a car. It's a, a big issue for western quolls, Chittich in, in southwest WA, is roadkill. And, and it's a big issue on Kangaroo Island, but it's a big issue because there is so many animals there. That's what makes Kangaroo Island so special. And so having a predator, a big predator, the biggest predator that was there at, at European settlement, that would be great. But like I said, we've got to talk this through with the community if it ever happens. And yeah, you know, they will love the roadkill. They'll love the dead bodies of the wallabies or the eastern greys or whatever's out there to have a, have a munch on when they can. We just need to deal with the other issues of their love of chickens or anything else that the community is, is concerned about. You know, it's a democracy. People have their, their right to have their opinions and be heard. But as I have said a number of times in this podcast, we also need to be bold and sometimes say, yeah, I hear you, but we're going to do it anyway. And we, we, we take your cares and your concerns on board and we will address that as best we can. But sometimes we need to overcome fearful people, put them aside and be bold as a nation, be bold as, as conservationists, as individuals to do things that are crazy, you know, sail around the world. As a young kid, as some 
we've had some of our Australians do and just set us a new bar for braveness, you know, and and do some things that are quite radical. But I think as and then as a society and as a certainly in the conservation world, we can take steps forward. But if we're constantly afraid of the unknown or afraid of, of focusing on the negatives, then we won't do anything. And we people don't do anything. You know, they just stay home and stay safe. But I'd, I'd like to think we can... We can. I mean, yeah, quails, they chew things, they eat things. That's what their job is. That's what they're important in nature for. And ecosystems need predators. They need lions, they need tigers, they need wolves, they need bears. Okay, they eat us occasionally. I mean, a wolf went into a tent in Banff in Canada just the other day and scared the crap out of some people and chewed, held onto a bloke. But that's a small issue. You know, it's not focused on, you know, okay, sharks eat us occasionally. You know, whoopie do. You know, they're out there doing their job and being a part of nature. We, If we focus, and, and we do that in the media, we like negative things. We focus on the negative, then, you know, we get polarised and we don't swim in the ocean or we don't put quolls back in places where maybe they will do something that's not desirable, but we'll try and fix it when if it happens. Yeah, and I don't think that a quoll's going to be actively hunting a human. I think a quoll <laughs> is the type of thing that'll stay in the periphery. Even a six, seven kilo tiger quoll, I mean, they would they would stay away from people. Well, we've just heard what they do to Adrian's. And for the record, right. that was a dead, drunk Adrian on the way back from the pub. And I'd be more than happy to donate my body to conservation. Yeah, I mean, most, most of animals stay away. You know, wolves, they stay yeah. away from humans. But yeah, okay, the other day in, in Canada, a wolf went into a tent. It was destroyed. It was a wolf that was in a poor condition, probably at the end of its life, aberrant behaviour. You're going to be afraid of wolves and going to Canada? I've been to Canada. Go, it's fantastic. You know, mm. I saw wolves in Yellowstone and in Wyoming, in North America, just fantastic. Was I afraid of for my kids? No. Would I go to Fraser Island and be afraid of dingoes and kids? No. Should we manage the issue? Yeah, we should. But, yeah, you know, the predators are big and they're bold and they're exciting, but they can be a threat to our livestock or to our pet animals or whatever. You know, we just need to be smarter and, and manage those things. And Education. Recently, someone was attacked by a lace monitor yeah. in a campsite their dog was killed and I believe their dog was a Jack Russell which yeah. probably probably started the problem although yeah. the problem probably started from people feeding the animal at the campsite yeah. and I'm on the fence I actually don't mind campsite animals but there needs to be a degree of education about it you're going into a, an area where there might be a two and a half metre goanna hanging around your campsite because people have been chucking sausages at yeah. it you need to be aware of that you need to not have babies left unattended you need to not have a dog that's going to try to take that animal down yeah yeah no and i'm really concerned i mean this uh social thing we do as humans we want to we want the animal to be on our terms in our area and our photograph and whatever and and fraser island the dingoes is the classic you know the people who feed those dogs ought to be you know put out a crate bait they they should define is is hefty the farm should probably be heftier i went to a, a conference in america with the wildlife disease association and there was a lady there talking about managing big animals like bears in in alaska she was from alaska and they've fired blanks, you know, blank shotgun rounds at, at firecrackers and all sorts of stuff to try and scare them away. Nothing really worked. What they found worked was tasers. <laughs> so they would they actually set up a taser. They didn't that, work. <laughs> I, I, I don't want to have it done on me. But they tasered a, a moose, and this moose is in a pen and never came back to that area for like a year. Oh, God. And so they found that a very adverse experience in tasering and in a way that's safe for the animal so you can't just go and buy one off the shelf and whack an animal that's certainly a small animal like a dingo on fraser island but if you can teach that bad behavior that humans who carry that little yellow thing that looks like a taser that's probably a taser i'll keep away we can teach animals to behave in a way that is safer for our our lifestyle our people we want to be in we want to fish on fraser island we want to do stuff but we want the dingoes to be there 
but somehow we have to force in these animals a behavior, a, a realization that we are dangerous. So I reckon give them all, you know, a number of people tasers and a whole bunch of people, a whole lot of dummy tasers that don't do anything, they all look the same thing and animals will learn quite quickly that don't hang around humans. But certainly people feeding animals, they think it's great and they get lumpy jaw and kangaroos and other things like that. Mm. Yeah, it's pretty. We, we can be pretty dumb at times. Yeah, because you can imagine campsite quals on Kangaroo Island, can't you? <laughs> well, you get them in the Flinders. My daughter went to Wapena with her friends to hike the Samaritan's Peak Trail and see the stuff. And Dad had been the old ranger there, had told her all these rules and things. And they, okay, get up early because it's a big Samaritan's Peak, seven hours return hike. It's hot. You know, I'd done numerous rescues of tourists up there. And my eldest daughter, Anna, had decided with her friends, Dad said, we've got to get going early. And they left the Wilpena campsite early and they were crossing the creek to log into the, the hike book. And there was a quoll. So, yeah, now at Wilpena, you can see a quoll. You I've can camp at Wilpena and you can see a quoll. In the evenings around the restaurant too? Yeah, yeah. The, around the bins? Yeah, the restaurant staff took a photo and put it up on Facebook. Yeah, I was, I've got that photo of a quoll just in the edge of the light at the Wilpena restaurant area there. I think that's amazing. Oh, that's it's a great, great yeah. As, as a sign of the recovery of the species, what we, you know, now hanging around us looking for a feed, looking for a bug, uh, you know, moth that's come to the light or a cockroach or a mouse or whatever, you know, it's great. It's a sign of, of the species recovery. And for the tourists who come to visit our country and spend their dollars here, yeah, it's, it's a fantastic thing. Their experience is so much richer now. And Australia becomes a more interesting place and a more exciting place because... Okay, there's maybe issues, not that quolls are an issue for humans up in the Flinders, but you know, there, there are concerns with what if the quolls eat some sort of rare endangered animal. That's what they do. They don't smash that species into oblivion. You know, if you're a Flinders worm lizard that lives under the ground or whatever that we're worried about, they'll take a bit of that and then go and find whatever's abundant and just nail that. And once they've had enough, they'll sit in their den and make babies, you know, or whatever. But um, yeah, sometimes we can get bit too concerned and a bit too apprehensive and yeah and now in the flinders yeah if you go and camp in the flinders you get a chance to see a western quoll and idnia running around your campsite that's the best thing ever mate thank you so much thank for the you. fact that we've got quolls again in south australia and I'd, I'd like to give a shout out to the crew at fame we've had fame on the show that's very appropriate yeah i should do that to fame who funded it all I came and had my our first meeting at, at the cafe at that at white there at um down here in Adelaide and they heard my crazy idea and they took it on board so if it wasn't for fame and and, the, and all the benefactors the people who opened their wallets and funded fame there wouldn't be quails in the Flinders there wouldn't be a lot of conservation you know fame's doing some great things I've got this my jacket on here with my numbat that, that fame gave me because I got detector dogs in WA now to try and detect cats to protect numbats so yeah if, if it wasn't for fame and, and of course the environment department up there and the environment department in WA that provided the quails and all the people like Catherine who did all the hard work and Mel and her PhD and Hannah with the brushed old possums that went in as well. We've got, now we've got brushed old possums back there as well. This is things we can do. You get rid of the foxes and cats, you can put animals back. And now the Flinders has two new animals back. The brushed old possums are back again and the western quolls back. Now we can think about other animals. We can think about red-tailed pascagals. We could think about bilbies. We could think about other animals that are on the historical list that used to be there. I mean, the numbat was recorded at Wilpena, striped anteater, as Marchant reported in his diary. But they are extremely vulnerable to, not, not just, you know, they can get nailed by birds of prey, but they're extremely vulnerable to foxes and cats. So we can find our answers, then we can put lots of our cool animals back in lots of places, hopefully, and make their lives a lot more sustainable into the future. Well, people like you around, yeah, the, the future is definitely looking better. Thanks, Steve. Just finally, if, if someone's listening and they want to get involved and they want to do something and they haven't got time to become a scientist, yep. not many people do, what would, what would you say to those people? I'd say a number of things. I'd say donate to organisations like Fame. 
like Australian Wildlife Conservancy, Bush Heritage. These NGOs are doing fantastic things for the environment and in saving our animals and saving our environment. But also, they need. I would like them to write to their minister. I mean, Hunt, Minister Hunt, when he was when he was environment minister, he went out on a, on a limb to say, "Let's kill two million cats." I don't know why he chose two million, but we need our government to, uh, who are risk averse, they are politicians. We need them to understand that we, as a voters, agree with this form of management. You know, we don't like this or we do like that. We need to put our voice where our votes are, where ideas are. They need to know that we are pro a disease to kill feral cats, a disease that has a vaccine. So their cat's going to be safe. We'll vaccinate your cat. We won't ever let a disease go to kill feral cats that won't have be protected for their domestic cats. But let us look. Let us try and find one. Don't just shut us down because you're afraid for your domestic cat. Um, if you think we should find a disease to kill foxes, a biocontrol for foxes, then tell your minister. Get looking. Get someone like Dave Peacock, he's crazy enough, to go look for somewhere in the world and see what the world's scientists say. That's how we got Mixo. The Uruguayan government told us in 1919 that they'd brought in some lab rabbits and this disease, which they didn't even know about, it, they described it after that, killed their lab rabbits. That gave us Mixo. That gave us $53 billion of agricultural benefit. Khaleesi virus was found in Spain by my colleague Dr. Brian Cook when he was working there and looking for some more fleas to carry myxomatosis in rabbits in Australia. That saved us a good part of $17 billion because we have people, colleagues around the world, who, uh, who may see a rabbit disease or a fox disease or a cat disease or a different strain that we have here in Australia, but we need our government to be willing to do that. And that takes our electorate, the voters, to, be will- to say to them, we are happy for you to do this, this action. And, and in cat management, feral cat management in Australia, we've changed a lot. You and I have had conversations about John Walmsley here in Adelaide and his cat hat mm-hmm. and how crazy ideas about cat management have now become more mainstream. Now the community is much more understanding. You know, we're losing a million birds a day to cats in Australia. You can read that paper by Sarah Legg and John Wynarski. In the US, it's even more. And mammals, add mammals to it, add reptiles to it. If you don't like that and I hate it, then, okay, we need a solution. And in a country this size with this little population, we need diseases and we need to find it. And we need to be smart about it. We need to be safe about it. We need to be humane for the animal. And we need to respect all the views of, of people and protect their domestic cats and all the rest of it. And we need to cover all those things. But we've got to look. We've got to try. Otherwise, we'll be battling these things for years to come. Dr David Peacock, well said, mate. And I hope someone listening feel inspired by what you've done. Maybe you know, come up with some of these solutions. Mate, thanks so much for your time. Thank My you. pleasure. And Thanks guys, for having me. Thank you for listening. Thank you.